ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like to support this podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. In 1936, the Stalin government adopted a new constitution. Hailed at the time as the most progressive constitution in the world, it quickly became dismissed as a sham, especially in light of the Great Terror. But as Samantha Lom argues in her new book, things aren't so simple. The Stalin constitution represented a social contract, and more interestingly, the government initiated a six-month public discussion on the draft. What was this public discussion on the draft constitution all about? And how does looking at it from Kirov province give a ground-level portrait of the Stalinist system, how people understood their rights and duties, and through the Constitution, expressed their grievances. Samantha Lom provides some insight. Samantha Lom is an assistant professor in the Department of Foreign Languages at Vyatka State University in Kirov, Russia. Her article, Personal and Political, A Microhistory of the Red Column Collective Farm, 1935-1936, was published in 2016 in the Karl Beck Papers in Russian and East European Studies. She's currently working on a book examining daily life on collective farms and the day-to-day relationships between collective farmers and local, local officials. Her new book is Stalin's Constitution, Soviet Participatory Politics and the Discussion of the 1936 Draft Constitution, published by Rutledge. Here's Samantha Lom. So most people, I think, when they hear about the Stalin Constitution of 1936, I think they act pretty dismissively and pretty much consider it just a sham and not really worth kind of thinking about or let alone studying it. So I wanted to start by just asking you, what do you find in the Constitution that's worth studying, that's worth understanding? Well, I actually came to the project the same way you just talked about Um you know, my first thought was Stalin constitution, this seems counterintuitive, so let's have a look. But I think that there's a lot more to the constitution than people think. And I do believe that the Soviet Union was more serious about its democratizing and participatory aspects than other people really think about. Um, You know, Stalin spent a whole chunk of an April going through three different versions of the draft constitution, making personal changes, spending a lot of effort. People from the Central Committee consistently sent angry letters to the provinces telling them that they were not recording enough suggestions, that they weren't sending them fast enough, or they were doing it in too much of a campaign-like function. So I think they genuinely wanted to know what people thought, and that they genuinely thought that they could open up the Soviet Union a little bit, you know, within reason. There was no idea of other parties, for example. But to have multiple candidates for an election, I think, was something that the central leadership was very much uh, in favor of. 
Why did the government feel that they even needed a new constitution in 1936? Well, that was sort of an accident. Uh, Much like the Articles of Confederation in the U.S., they had gone in with the idea of revising the original 1924 Constitution, and much like in the U.S. case, they ended up with a new one. The idea was that the situation economically and politically and socially had changed so much in the USSR that the 1924 Constitution really no longer reflected the social composition, the economic state, or the political state of the Soviet Union at that point. And that's an interesting thing about the Soviet constitutions is that they're not aspirational documents. You know, when the uh, American constitution was written, a lot of it was aspirational or some sort of guiding principle that you were supposed to live up to. Stalin in particular wrote that he wanted these to be a reflection of the current state of the USSR. It was specifically not meant to be aspirational or not a program for the future. So, so what role does what what, what do you, can you go into that a bit more? So, what that that's actually interesting. That's something I hadn't I didn't know or think about in terms of like what is the role of of the constitution within the Soviet system. So, if it's not aspirational, then then and it's supposed to reflect certain situ the current situation of society. So, what purpose? What what was its purpose? Well, if you ask Stalin, he would have said that the purpose was to codify the gains that had been made during the first five year plan and the shift in uh, social composition. And I think that's one of the reasons they do things like take repressive measures off of former kulaks or other class enemies. They believe that the social composition has shifted enough that they can do this and open up society. But is it supposed to, so like just to give a, just base base, uh, off the American example, right? So the American example is supposed to provide a situation for rights and relationship between gov- um, organs of the state and provide citizens with certain rights and legal protections. Is the Soviet constitution also supposed to do that or is it trying to do something else? It does those things, but it also provides for material security for its citizens, which is something you don't see in the American constitution, the right to education, the right to a pension. Um, Collective farmers try to get the right to a vacation, the right to uh, all sorts of material aid are written into the constitution. And I think that is very different. Right. So is it is it is it better to see it more like in terms of a social contract of sorts? Yes, I certainly think of it as a social contract. And it's a social contract in that it says what the citizen must do as, you know, having a, their citizenship, what they must do, but also the things that they should expect to receive from the state. It's a quid pro quo contract. And is the idea like, again, you know, thinking about the American constitution, it's not supposed, I'm assuming because it's a social contract, it's not supposed to be kind of an eternal document. Uh, It's probably open to like revision once the social social situation changes in the future. Certainly. I mean, that's why the 1936 constitution came about in the first place between 1924 and 1936. There had been so much change in society. They felt the 1924 constitution was no longer representative and they needed to create a new document. So talk about the the drafting of this new constitution. What was the process? And you, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, the role that Stalin took, but go into a bit more like what was his role in, in the, the drafting of this document? Well, he was head of the Constitutional Commission, but he was also one of the main editors. Uh, you had different people that were responsible for codifying different sections. For example, Vyshinsky headed up the section on law. 
and these different committee sections would create their little document, put it together, and then it was put together as one giant constitution by Stetsky Yakov Leventhal. And their original draft constitution was very different than what comes out at the end. They have a lot more of these social functions, and a lot more ideology in there. For example, there is a uh, article in the Constitution that says parents must raise their children to hate class enemies and be upstanding citizens. That does not make it past Stalin's edits. That, that's actually quite interesting. So in terms of Stalin's edits, what what can you develop? Can you see a pattern in the type of, of edits he's making and the types of provisions he's changing? Well, a lot of what he takes out is probably better served as a legislative initiative, and a fair number of these things, particularly in regards to labor and labor rights, do come out as part of the labor code. Uh, the big edit that tends to make people very unhappy later is that he changes the word through the ashiksa, or laborers, into robochi christian, uh, workers and peasants, and creates this uh, distinction between the two classes, which means that later, for certain rights such as vacations, um, pensions, that sort of thing. Collective farmers lose out. It's given to workers and service workers, but not to collective farmers, and they notice this very quickly. Oh, wow. So this is this is one of the reasons why, so after World War II, they're, they're responsible for their own housing reconstruction, and they're not able to get pe pensions until, like, I think the late 60s or early 70s. Is this, is this because of the the way the Constitution is written? Yeah, the way the document's set up, those rights are uh, basically reserved for workers and service workers, not peasants. They're not happy. No, I could imagine <laughs> not. So it, it, it's fascinating because, you know, you have them writing this draft Constitution. And, and one of the things you point out, too, they're also looking at constitutions from all over the world, particularly from the West. And... Um, and then they, they do this, what I think is a very strange thing, and that is they actually open up the draft for public discussion. Um, so before we get into the mechanics of that public discussion, I want to talk about the role of part, mass participation or participation from the population within the Stalinist system. Well, and I think that's something people always get wrong. They think of this as a totalitarian state in which nobody can participate. The Stalinist state is absolutely not totalitarian. They simply don't have the mechanisms or the people to be totalitarian over such a large territory. It's just physically impossible. But also, they really want to hear from the people. Getting popular participation involved in a lot of projects is how they get things done. That's how they get things like the five-year plan done. That's how they get collectivization done. You know, they pull people in from the cities, the, what are they, the 25,000ers, they pull in as volunteers. So getting people to participate in all of these state building tasks is something they've done for a long time. So it's really not aberrant in any way. And why do they want people to participate in, in the, you know, talk about and discuss the, the constitution? In part, I think they would like to people to feel vested in the system. Also, they need information about what is going on in the provinces, and this is one of the ways to get it. In many ways, newspapers, complaints, and people's voices are the way that the government knows what is going on outside of Moscow. They don't necessarily trust the regional officials or the local officials. Uh, and I've seen some of the reports, some of them are really quite inaccurate. And it's unclear if that's simply because they wanted to lie to their bosses or if these men simply lack the tools and education to create an accurate report. My guess is both.
Yeah, and I would also probably add that the local institutions themselves weren't really, you know, in terms of governance to really know what's going on in parts of society. Would you would you say that or is it something else? Well, you know, for example, I'm looking at new stuff on uh, life after collectivization in Kirov. That's my new project. And I'm looking at certain districts and their level of control. You know, I'm looking at, for example, Sanchorsky district, which is massive. And it has 69 communists and 189 Komsomol members trying to, you know, govern an entire district. And their main means of transportation is the bicycle, which means that, you know, six months out of the year, they don't go anywhere. And of course, that their efforts are, you know, best um, concentrated in areas closest to the capital, because those are the ones they can reach. Districts far away, they simply don't have much influence on. Well, this comes to the other issue and in, in that the, the, the need for popular participation as a, one of the ways in which the, the center can understand what's going on in the periphery. So what does the Soviet system, you know, you focus on the province of Kirov. So what does the Soviet system look like from Kirov? Uh, not a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it does really depend on where you live. People do not really realize the scope of Russia. The Kirov region currently is about the same land area as France. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the road system was terrible. In some places, they simply don't have much in the way of roads. Transport is terrible. Phone connections are terrible. You have communists mainly in either district capitals or the capital city, but on a lot of collective farms, you don't have any real representation of the state at all. So how does it, I mean, this is, you know, you just mentioned what, like 69 communists and, a, a, you know, almost 150 or a bit more Komsomol members. So for people who are in, you know, collective farms, um, what is their relationship with the state? What contact do they have with it? Or even how do they even understand it? Usually people show up during some sort of campaign on the collective farms. It's usually the spring sowing campaign and the fall harvest campaign. They also do some sort of political agitation at the time. And it could be something simple as reading a newspaper or it could be trying to conduct lessons. It really depends on the individual doing it and how much effort they feel like putting into it. They're usually there for a couple of days to a week and then they move on. So it's very sporadic. Then the government, okay, so the government facilitates this public discussion of the draft constitution. And this, this is a, it lasts for a six month period from June to December 1936. Given the, the, the lack of any mechanisms of governance, how do they even orchestrate this discussion? Rather poorly. <laughs> In many ways, I have the, the utmost sympathy for these poor men at the Ryon level. They have an elementary school education for the most part, absolutely no help at all. And they are given all of these campaigns that they must implement. And the constitutional discussion is very seasonal. Uh, in June, when the information is first published in Pravda, you do have a lot of people that go out into the district, into the collective farms with copies of Pravda or other printouts of the constitution. And they have discussions, and the discussions, again, can simply range from the guy reading the Constitution out loud and asking if anybody has any questions, which does get criticized as being incredibly ineffective, or trying to organize actual lessons. 
And then you see this again in October as the harvest is coming in and as they're preparing for the district congresses of Soviets, there's another push. In the summer, on the collective farms, there is almost no attention paid at all to the discussion of the draft constitution, which makes people from Moscow very unhappy. In August, Akulov uh, actually sends out a letter demanding accountability and more information coming from the provinces because they're not getting what they expected. He actually sends out basically a questionnaire that they have to fill out and send back to him every couple of weeks with more information. So Moscow's constantly demanding information that the provinces are really not capable of giving them. Talk, talk about kind of documents they generate when they do these discussions. I mean, you, you have a lot of material about, you know, how uh, regular citizens are responding to various position, uh, provisions within the Constitution. So before getting into like what people actually, how they understand it, wh what are some of the materials you're using to even get at the voices of, of locals? Well, a lot of my material comes from the compilations that they did send to Moscow. They created books in which they have uh, basically a list of the place, sometimes the person's name, and then the list of the suggestion. And those would have probably come from collective farms. In larger urban centers where you have more developed uh, communist party cells, they had much a much better discussion. They had multiple meetings, they had multiple study circles, and then you can get like study circle notes from that. I found a couple of uh, lesson plans about how they should discuss the constitution in uh, the Kirov city party committee materials which was actually quite helpful. I don't know that they necessarily ran the lessons that way, but it shows the aspects of the constitution that they thought that the, somebody thought they should prioritize. Right. And then what did the center do with all this material? Uh, they idea? kept it. But it's did, in did Moscow. It, but did they, did it actually influence? Yes. Uh, Stalin and uh, Molotov would get sort of um, like, updates of the day or something where they would summarize these and send them to them to read. And one of the things I have found very interesting is that citizens also wrote letters to different newspapers or simply to the leaders in Moscow about the constitution as well. My favorite is from a little boy uh, and he addresses the letter, I kid you not, to the center of Moscow. That is the only address. And you know where I found it? I found it in Garf. <laughs> it got to the center of Moscow. <laughs> it probably took months, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it got but there. <laughs> it did get there. That's interesting. That's you know, it's it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating to when you see, you know, just what does end up in the archive. It it, it does give you a complete different impression of what what's going on in that country during these periods. So, um, what. What do people say? So they're having these, they're orchestrating these discussions, they're having, you know, lessons, they're trying to teach people about the Constitution. So how, how do people understand their rights and duties um, in, in, the, in Kirov? Not the way the central state would like them to. <laughs> um, the lesson plans for the central state and for the, the party committees really focus on this idea that you should be happy and thankful for these rights and work harder to build socialism. The local newspaper of Kirovskaya Pravda runs a lot of testimony from like Stakhanovites or other people who have really seen an increase in standard of living 
under the Soviet Union, and they're all things like, I'm a woman, I have 14 children under the czar, I would never have been able to work, and my kids would never go to school, but now I am a tractor driver, and I have a radio and a bicycle, and my kids are getting education. And that's not really what you see in the discussion. Um, the things that get the most attention in Kirov are things like vacations, benefits, particularly for the collective farmers. I told you they were very unhappy that they were cut out of uh, vacation time. They're really, really unhappy about that. That is one of the articles that gets the most attention from collective farmers. Uh, also, pensions tend to be mentioned a lot. And that's across groups, not just collective farmers, although they would like to know who is going to pay for their pension, who is going to pay to send people to sanatoria. Do they have to do it? Should it come from their fund? Why should a worker get it paid for by the state, but the collective farm has to make an insurance fund for their own workers? And they also have a lot of questions about land. Uh, the, the question on land in specific is usually decided by the state act on eternal usage of land. But they have questions about hay meadows, forests, lakes, all of these resources that tend to be very important to their daily life that they would also like. This is interesting because these are some of the same concerns they had after the emancipation from serfdom. Yeah, no, uh, in this terms doesn't of dealing go with away. landlords. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, how did how did they, they have access to forestry or how do they have access to grazing meadows? I mean, a lot of these are similar concerns. There's also a lot of concern about education. Uh, education is provided free of charge, but a lot of students would like certain changes made. They would like, for example, the state to provide textbooks or other material goods needed for the children to go to school. And particularly, they focus on children from families with lots of children or from single parent households or poor households, where they should be also given things like textbooks, uh, notebooks, pencils, clothing so that they could go to school. And there's also a push to get rid of any sort of age limit on schooling, to let anybody go to school regardless of their age. And how, did, how do, did people understand their duties as citizens of the Soviet Union? Um, <laughs> it's interesting, particularly when we look at things like military service. Most people believe that they have military service. The sticky question there is, what role do women play in military service? That tends to get a lot of attention because the Constitution says men and women are equal. But what does that really mean? Some people think that means that women should be soldiers along with men. Other people think that maybe they should only serve in the medical corps. Some people say, well, a woman's got a gun. She can be an effective partisan. She should be able to serve her country. Do you give them training? Do you not? And there's a lot of suggestions about that, what the role of women should be in the armed forces. And interestingly enough, there too is a, uh, a wording question. The difference between abyazinist and povinist. They do not like the word povinist. Uh, and when I translated it, it both came across as obligation in English, so I had to go track down a Russian person. And I'm like, the dictionary says this is the same thing, but these people are unhappy, so clearly it's not. The difference, I have been told, is that povinist has this sense of sorest obligation, something that you have to do, you're forced to do, your drugs from your village. Yeah. Whereas uh, abyazinus is something that you're sort of proud to do. It's an obligation that comes from you being a citizen, sort of the citizen-soldier idea. And apparently that was a big deal because there are a fair number of uh, 
suggestions to change that change that word. That's interesting because it, it's a it in terms of this this issue of of you know one of the things that the Soviet system creates is it turns people the revolution I should say more broadly just it turns former subjects of the Russian Empire into into citizens. And I, I could see why the the distinction in those two concepts would be really important. But what about for going back to collective farmers because their situation is so different than people from than workers or people who work in cities. Because in a, in a lot of senses, um, they are kind of in a situation of being subjects um, of of the state that they have certain obligations that they have to perform uh, on the collective farm. So talk a bit about like what life is on the collective farm and the relationship between collective farmers and, you know, the state? Well, that's a tricky subject. Uh, you know, my next book is going to be on life after collectivization. And I have to say, there really isn't one collective farm experience. Um, each farm is very different. And a lot of it depends on local factors, whether or not you have good management, whether or not people work well together. Because you have some very successful farms. You have honor roll collective farms who have things like banyas, they have electricity, they have radios, they have all of these red corners, they have stolovaya where you can have dinner, they have cars and trucks, they have tractors. And then you have in the same district a farm that is failing. People are starving, they need grain aid from the state. They're living in tiny, dirty houses. And a lot of times the difference has nothing to do with the relationship with the state, but has to do with how the people in the village work together and the leadership of the collective farm. I would also imagine what they're producing too. Not really. Uh, Kirov is a very crappy region for grain. Um, so while we do produce grain, it's not nearly as much. Dairying is a big focus up here, as is flax production. And collective farms would often send men to go work in the forest as well. Even pre-Zar, or even during the Tsarist period, most of the people in Kirov relied on some form of handicraft production or athod, some sort of seasonal migrant labor to make ends meet because we really are not a good climate for agriculture. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I was thinking more in terms of in other collective farms around around the, the union, if you're growing, say, products for industrial production or if you're growing tobacco uh, these farms, from my understanding, tend to be more wealthy than than others that are producing just grain. Within the Kirov region, it doesn't seem to really matter as much what they're producing as how well they're organized and how much people are stealing. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so one of the things about the, the, the Stalin constitution is that it did, as you mentioned, it, it sought to reach franchise class, so-called class aliens institute habeas corpus in, in criminal procedure and provide for a multi-candidate elections, not multi-party, but multi-candidate elections uh, to, in, to improve official accountability to, to locals. Um, so how did local officials and regular Kirovites respond to these measures? Poorly. These were not popular, particularly habeas corpus. I was very surprised that people, not just officials, but regular people absolutely rejected the idea of habeas corpus. The idea was that it would make it much harder to arrest people that were causing problems. And it seems like they pro prioritized stability and safety over 
any sort of civil right. They didn't really see any point in having it. They actually even asked at some point that they could be enfranchised to arrest hooligans or criminals on the spot, rather than having to go get a warrant from the procurator. And and what about the what about the the um, refranchising class aliens? They weren't real happy with that either. And interestingly enough, priests tend to be less popular than kulaks. Uh, and I couldn't really find out why. Part of it is the source base. Most of the stuff written about the church during the Soviet period is written by the church now. So they tend to portray themselves as, you know, good people who are being oppressed as opposed to other people they don't like. But I know during the czarist era, priests were often unpopular because they had to pay taxes for them and they were seen as sort of spongers or drunks or gluttons that would come and take your stuff. Yeah, yeah, there is a long record of that. Um, and and what also then what about official can the multi-candidate elections? I mean, surely residents would want better accountability from officials. They certainly did. They didn't write a lot about whether they wanted multi-candidate elections. But during the period of the discussion, you do have local elections that take place. And they do get rid of people they think are doing a job poorly. And that seems to be what Stalin had intended with the multi-candidate elections. When he talked to Roy Howard, he said he saw democracy as a whip in the hand to get you know people back into... To sell, you know, the local people would say, I know this person's doing a bad job. He doesn't build schools. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He's not a good candidate. Let's remove him. And Moscow didn't know enough about what was going on in the provinces to make those decisions, but they knew the locals did. And that was one of the goals is enfranchising them, empowering them. And we see this with repression, too, in 37, you know, this idea of going to the little people to have them dime out the people in power that are not doing their job correctly. So, but so, how do you explain this? Uh, you said you were surprised about the habeas corpus issue. Um, how do you explain the desire for stability and also this? Uh, it seems support for really harsh police measures against you know criminals and and other people causing trouble in in the region. Well, the state was almost non-existent in some rural areas, and crime was a fairly serious problem. I don't have all of the criminal statistics, but the ones I found, uh, first of all, they tended to prioritize crimes against the state over crimes against people. So things like stealing collective farm property, uh, embezzlement, that sort of thing tended to be prioritized, as opposed to things like hooliganism, rape, murder. And those do appear to be widespread problems. Um, I've had lots of accounts where people would get in drunken fights and beat each other or break into someone's house or set it on fire. And oftentimes it's explained as, you know, class enemy elements targeting a cohos activists. I don't know that that was entirely accurate. I imagine that there were personal problems there that simply aren't reflected. Um, but it does appear that violence was an everyday part of life. And I think they wanted to get rid of that. And do you think that this, this, this uh, kind of desire from the population for heavy handedness is also connected to just the lack of the state presence of the state to ensure order. I also think that Russia doesn't have a long history of rule of law and constitutionalism. So I think a lot of these ideas had simply no resonance with the people. I mean, even now, Russians sort of are suspicious of too much democracy. Uh, 
I remember one of my bosses yelling at me that we were doing badly in our department because she had given us too much democracy. And my American brain was like, too much democracy is like too much money. It's not a thing. So then that, that I mean, that does bring up the question because, you know, one of the things that's that's kind of touted about the Stalin constitution is, you know, considered like at the time one of the freest constitutions in the world. So what do what are your subjects living in Kirov in the 1930s? How do they understand democracy? What does it mean to them or Soviet democracy? Uh, I don't know that they really care about democracy. It wasn't certainly something that they talked a lot about. Right, but there was a lot of rhetoric about it. There was. Um, but it seems more about, let's see how to say this. It, it Actually, it really doesn't seem very important in their lives at all, to be honest. <laughs> But is it does it does it take a form? Because my impression, I give you what I I but I think, and some of the things that I've seen is that democracy is more seen in terms of participatory. Yeah, ways, participation. Rather than, yeah, rather than important. voting. Yeah, no, no one, no one believes that voting counts. I mean, even now, you know, the most recent presidential election, no one really believed their vote counted either, and no one could tell me what any of the political platforms were. So I think that's a long history too. But yeah, this idea of participation and being involved in various campaigns, but even that wasn't necessarily universally popular. Uh, Stakhanovism, for example, was not popular in a large part of the countryside because it meant that everybody else then had to work hard too. Particularly female Stakhanovites were targeted, probably for breaking gender role, but also for increasing the workload. So years ago, Arch Getty, you know, posited that there is a connection between the Constitution, the plan, the plans for multi-candidate elections, and mass repression. And his argument was basically that um, the police in the provinces and local officials were were flooding the center with uh, reports about anti-Soviet elements in the countryside, and how if you open the elections up, all of these former kulaks and priests and monarchists and whoever is out there are going to be elected, the Soviets, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this really um, reflected a heightened anxieties about reintegrating these kind of class enemies back into Soviet society. And he argued that this, these reports and all of this information he, the center was getting from the periphery really influenced Stalin's kind of turn or acceptance of mass operations, right? So what did you, and this is a big, big debate about the origins of repressions and why they happen when they do. So what did you discover on, on this, this question? Well, I, I was limited in my sources, you know, we're not allowed to see directly police records, but I was able to get into NKVD party committee documents. And they do have an interesting rhetoric. It's starting in about 1937. There is this idea that class enemies could use these elections to worm their way into positions of power. And then about midway through, you really start hearing it not being they could, it becomes they are or they will. You know, it becomes a certainty that you need to be increasingly vigilant. And I have instances from 1936 and 1937 in the districts where people who were formerly disenfranchised get elected out of uh, Zuzinski district, for example, there is a fellow, I do believe called Naskov, who gets elected as uh, a rural Soviet chairman. And he brings all of his friends in, he starts bullying the local communists, he sort of sets up his own little family circle of former class enemies. He starts uh, collecting money to reopen 
uh, churches, and the people in Zuzinski district freak out. They, again, are a very, very small group of communists, and Zuzinski district is huge. It is mostly forested, and as late as 1937, it has a fair number of hooters. So these individual farmsteads make it really difficult to control, and they freak out. Um, and as a result of their freak out, they actually seem to target the individual smallholders. Um, they go on the campaign of basically trying to seize all of their property and get rid of them, even though technically that's illegal. Uh, in the 1936 Constitution, individual smallholding is protected. And uh, one of the Obcom inspectors who comes out criticizes them for violating their rights because they will do things like go to their house and do an illegal inspection and take all of their flax. Uh, to meet procure procurement quotas, which is a violation of their constitutional rights. Absolutely. And the OPCOM inspector points it out. The RICOM doesn't seem to care. <laughs> uh, but, you know, these sorts of conflicts seem to be widespread. And I see this a lot at the district level, at the RIE level. Uh, in Santorski district, like I talked about earlier, um, they had actually been ordered to give back individual smallholding property that had been illegally seized in 1935. And the head of the Santorsky Rycom, a fellow by the name of Nagavitsin, who was a former Czechist and then a procurator, basically said they're not going to. He thinks the decision is incorrect and that they are challenging it. So you do see a lot of times where orders come from Moscow that they either ignore or disobey because they feel it threatens local security. So do you do you think that there do you uh, think there is something to this argument of oh, yeah. essentially the periphery pushing for mass for mass you know mass operations? Do I think that's probably the only reason? No, but I think it is uh, definitely a factor. No, it's it's a fascinating idea that, uh, and this is of course you know as we know one of the things that Arch has done is really show how the terror is also pushed from the periphery as much as it is from the center. So I mean, the more I learn, the more I'm honestly amazed that like, you know, what 69 communists and 189 Komsomol members are capable of running anything <laughs> yeah, in right. a relatively functional manner, you know, with <laughs> bicycles. Yeah, right. I mean, that is a miracle in and of themselves. So I can totally understand why they are really uncomfortable. Because, for example, in Santorski district, the number of the party doesn't really increase. You know, you've got... Uh, purges in 33 and 34, and then you have moratoriums on taking people into the party. So the numbers don't really increase. But even as the number of individual smallholders decreases, there's still, you know, 2,000 households of them. They're definitely outnumbered. And finally, given all of this, this, this incredibly uh, fascinating and complicated story about the Constitution and what it, what it says about you know, what's going on in 1936 and into 1937 in the Soviet Union, or in Kirov in particular. So what does this discussion uh, around the constitution in Kirov say to you about how people experienced Stalinism and or the Stalinist system at the local level? Well, I think it says to me that most history is local and personal. Uh which I love microhistory, um, and it's beautiful, but it does make it hard to understand systems as a whole. But I think that a large problem with the way much of Soviet history has been written is it focuses on these uh, things coming out of Moscow or these large systems and doesn't look at the local and the particular, because that seems to have more of an effect on people's lives than anything else. I think a lot of people 
experienced both good and bad things. Um, you know, a lot of people had family members that were dekulaked. A lot of people had family members that were labeled as an enemy of the people. But at the same time, they also genuinely see an improvement in their standard of living. You know, they're getting radios. Their kids are going to school. Women have the right to vote. Women are being sent to school. So you have a real mixed bag. And I think that's reflected in the discussion of the Constitution. That was Samantha Lom, an assistant professor in the Department of Foreign Languages at Vyatka State University in Kirov, Russia. Her article, Personal and Political, A Microhistory of the Red Column Collective Farm, 1935-1936, to was published in the Karl Beck Papers in Russian and East European Studies. She's currently working on a book examining the daily life on collective farms and the day-to-day -day relationships between collective farmers and local officials. Her new book is Stalin's Constitution, Soviet Participatory Politics, and a Discussion of the 1936 Draft Constitution, published by Rutledge. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Bonito. <laughs>